Hello, welcome to the Building Through Him podcast. My name is Mary Jo Parrish. I'm the founder of Kingdom Builders. And in this episode, we will be discussing the broken and the beautiful. And just so you know, you are always loved and you are always welcome here. So I always like to start off with some funny stories. I struggle with kidney stones. I passed a kidney stone and I have to catch it so we can get it analyzed. And then the doctor can tell me what to eat so that I can read that information and then pretend like I'm going to do something different and then I don't and then I end up with more kidney stones. But anyway, so I passed this kidney stone and I am so excited because this one has caused me a lot of pain and uh, my team knows that's been causing me pain. And I have a picture of it on my palm and I send it to him and I'm like, I'm so excited, look. And uh, one of my team responded, oh my goodness. The first thing I saw when I opened this text was the picture of your palm with that stone in it, and I thought you had the stigmata. So that's why she thought I was excited, because I had the stigmata, which we thought was hilarious. No, definitely don't have the stigmata. We were laughing about it, and I was telling my husband about it at dinner, and my six-year-old Joseph says, what are kitty stones? Kitty, K-I-T-T-Y. And I said, Joseph, what do you think they are? So whenever your kid's ask a question or you're around kids who ask a question, don't just answer it. Always ask them what they think the answer is because your life will be filled with so much more laughter if you do. So Joseph, what do you think they are? And he said, they're kitties inside your body. And I said, oh, how do you think those kitties made of stone got inside my body? And then he runs away. And I'm like, I guess we're done with this conversation. Then he comes back and he brings me a book. And so for those of you who know children's books, it's there was an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. Perhaps she'll die. That whole thing. And he like showed it to me and I'm like, you think I ate a kitty made of stone? And he nodded his head and I was like, thanks, bud. Thanks a lot. That's how you know what my kids think of me. Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon his handmaid's lowliness. Behold, from now on, all ages will call me blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is from age to age to those who fear him. He has shown might with his arm, dispersed the arrogant of mind and heart. He has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. The hungry he has filled with good things the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped Israel his servant, remembering his mercy, according to his promise, to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. Amen. So in Kingdom Builders, we always talk about our foundation. We have three things that we do in our foundation. We pray for a minimum of 10 minutes a day. No matter what's happening in our life, if we cannot stop for 10 minutes and allow the Father to love on us, then we're not going to have the energy or wisdom or inspiration to get through our day. So a minimum of 10 minutes of prayer a day. We go to church on Sundays because that's a divine commandment, not a divine suggestion. And then we stay in a state of grace. If we're struggling with any type of serious sin, we get to an unbound session or we go to a self-help group. We get to the sacrament of reconciliation, whatever needs to happen for us to get out of that sin. And then we build ourselves, build others, and build the church. So today we're talking about broken and beautiful. It sounds like a soap opera, right? But it's not. The broken and the beautiful. So this is from the Gospel of Matthew 28, 16. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but they doubted. 
So the apostles, this is after they had seen Jesus perform all his miracles. They worshiped, but they doubted. And is Jesus mad about their doubt? Nope. What's he do? He actually gets closer to them. So this is the continuation of that. Then Jesus approached them and said to them, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of age. So Jesus, even though he knows they're doubting, he approaches and he reassures. If you've listened to Building Through Him podcast, you know I have a ton of kids. I have 10 kids, and all of my kids, when they're little, I like to say we breed them small and wimpy because, like, when they're little, they just like cling to my leg and they're like super overly attached to me. And then once they get to about four, then they're fine. Then they don't seem to even know I exist. That healthy unattachment, then. But when they're little, they just cling to me so strongly. Like, I am their everything. So if someone else is holding one of my children and they're not familiar with them, and they start to cry. They like look for me, like, where's my mama? Where's my mama? And as soon as I come closer to them, as soon as I approach them and they see my face, like, oh, that's just that calm comes over them, just seeing my face. And that's the Lord knows that. Lord's the same way. So when we're in that state where we're struggling, when we're crying and we're upset, the Lord approaches us because we are the children of God. We're his heirs and he's our daddy. This is from Romans 8, 14 through 17. We cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And so when the word Abba is translated to daddy, Abba, daddy, like we can call out to daddy. And our daddy doesn't require us to be perfect. He doesn't. He just desires to love on the real and vulnerable us. So I was reading this book called Holy Desperation by Heather King. Excellent book. She's just raw and real and just beautiful. Her faith is amazing. But she compares um, that broken and beautiful to the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. And I was talking to one of my kids about this and I was just amazed with the connection of Velveteen Rabbit and Jesus. And, and they were like, Mom, I have no idea what you're talking about. I realized I'd never read my kids The Velveteen Rabbit, so I failed as a mother. But for those of you who do know about this story, it's a really cool connection. So I'm going to quote The Velveteen Rabbit, and this is by Marjorie Williams. Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. You become. It takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily, or have sharp edges, or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to the people who don't understand. And God loves our littleness. He loves our humility. He loves our trust. 
And when he approaches, when we're in that place where we're sad and we're seeking him, when he approaches, he desires that we don't turn away, but we allow ourselves to be loved by him. And we become real when we allow ourselves to be loved in our woundedness. Because in his eyes, the broken are so beautiful. So if you're addicted to pornography, if you have obsessive thoughts of suicide, if your marriage is falling apart, the blood of Jesus was poured out for that. He entered once for all into the sanctuary, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. That's Hebrews 9. Jesus is approaching you. Jesus is here. So St. Teresa of Avila would struggle to understand when she heard people say that they wish they could be around when Jesus was walking the earth. One of her quotes is, I know that I possess you in the blessed sacrament as truly as people did then, and I wonder what more anyone could possibly want. And so we know that the blessed sacrament, we talk about the Eucharist being a host, right? And host is derived from the Latin word hostia, And hostia actually means victim. So when we say host, we actually mean victim. And we think about that. We know that Jesus became a victim. He chose that so small so that we would always have access to him. Another quote by St. Teresa of Avila. How could I, a poor sinner who has offended you so often, dare to approach you, O Lord? If I beheld you in all your majesty, under the appearance of bread, however, it is easy to approach you. We had one of our builder sisters who was on her way to a commissioning ceremony for a kingdom builder team. And on her way there, she got this terrible, terrible pain. She said it was so bad. She almost pulled her car over and she finally got to the church and told her team like she was in a lot of pain and mass is about to start. So they just went ahead and walked in mass and they were like all praying for her during the mass. And she said the pain was so bad. She said she had just tears rolling down her cheeks. And she's like, I probably should go to the hospital. Like it's so bad. And at the moment where the priest lifted up the Eucharist and said, do this in memory of me and lifted up that Eucharist, she said the pain was lifted up at the exact same time. She was healed in that moment of consecration. And we know that Jesus came down from heaven to be with us. Jesus establishes the new covenant through his body and his blood. But we say covenant is actually more than that. It's a memorial. It's do this in memory of me. It's a memorial. So a lot of us have heard people talk about amnesia. You know, it's this radical forgetting, right? But there's another part within the Eucharistic prayer, it's kind of another type of radical something. It's radical remembering, and it's called anamnesis. So anamnesis is part of the Eucharistic prayer where it's a radical remembering. So what are we remembering? So talk about like a memorial ritual for Jewish people. When they did those, it was recalling the real presence of God's saving action for their people. Scott Hahn, one of my favorite authors, he discusses these four cups at the Seder meal. And it's like, and people are talking about the Jewish Seder meal. Like, what does that have to do with me and my Christian? Like, I still have to go home and make dinner. You know, like, how does that impact me? It's like, trust me, it does. When we know more about our root system, where we come from, that's why we, we are called Judeo-Christian, because our root system is in the Jewish faith. 
everything comes alive. All of a sudden, when you're at the Mass, you're like, oh my goodness, that's why we see Jesus, Lamb of God. That's why, you know, it all makes sense. You have this new appreciation and this unveiling of the glory that is actually before you, that's been before you the whole time, which you didn't even realize. So trust me, it's worth it. So Scott Hahn discusses the four cups at this Passover Seder meal. And so we know at the Last Supper, they were celebrating Passover, okay? So they're together at the Last Supper celebrating Passover. So what did they do? What did that Seder meal involve? So it involved those four cups. There was four cups in that Seder meal. And like, let's just all just pause a moment for whoever was doing all those dishes, like four different cups. I'm like an, a cup Nazi when it comes to my house. Is that your water cup? Did you take another water cup? Wait, who's, how many water cups are you going through the day? So you have all these kids and all, everyone needs a drink of water, especially in the summer. There's so many cups. So like, first of all, appreciation for who's ever doing the dishes in your house. Thank you, Lord, for that person. But for them, four cups per person. So the Seder meal starts with a blessing, and then they drink the first cup. And then they eat bitter herbs. If you ever are teaching your kids or grandkids or spiritual children things, one of the strongest ways for people to remember things is through food. So you don't know this. Like when I was teaching, I would bring in like pomegranates and stuff that they would reference in Old Testament to make the kids understand. They were like, oh, this tastes like strawberry corn. But anyways, during the Seder meal, they would do the bitter herbs to remind them of the bitter time when they were held in captivity in Egypt and just to remind themselves like, oh, it was so bad. So they ate those bitter herbs. And then the Passover story was read. And so just to remind you of the Passover story, remember the plagues that came over the Egyptians because Pharaoh would not let the people go. And then there was the final plague, the killing of the firstborn son. And they had to slaughter that unblemished lamb so that the angel of death would pass over their house. So any house that had the blood of the unblemished lamb on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over. They wouldn't be touched. Now, then they go back to the Seder meal. The song was sung and a second cup was drunk. And then they ate the main course, the main course of the unblemished lamb that was cooked and the unleavened bread. Why was it unleavened bread? because they didn't have time to let it rise, right? They didn't have time to let it rise. So they had to cook it before it was risen. So it was considered unleavened. And we know that in our host today, in the Eucharist today, that's unleavened bread to represent that. And so they ate the unblemished lamb. They ate the unleavened bread. Then the third cup was drunk. And that was considered the cup of blessing. So now we're back and I want you to visualize the last supper. And this is about to happen, like that he's in the midst of doing this whole Seder meal with his people, with his apostles. While they were eating, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, gave it to them, and said, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which will be shed for many. Now, what is supposed to come next is a song in the fourth cup. And this is the most important part of the meal is that song in the fourth cup. And Jesus lets them know the fourth cup's not going to happen. And even though the Jewish people have been celebrating the Seder meal for over a thousand years in the same way, Jesus is changing the meal. Why? Because he's becoming the meal. Jesus is the unblemished lamb. Amen, I say to you, I shall not drink again the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's Mark 14, 25 and 26. 
So they still sung the hymn, but they didn't drink that fourth cup. And so like, why are we talking about all these cups? Because this is the good part. And then you'll be like, oh my gosh, it opens up everything. Because then they go into the garden. Remember, they go into the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus falls to the ground and he says, Abba, Father. Remember, Daddy, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So right there he's asking in Mark 14, 36, remove this cup, that fourth cup from me. But he says, you know, your will, Lord. He's asking his daddy to remove that fourth cup. He doesn't desire to suffer, you know, but he's willing to do the father's will. And his blood about to be poured out is that cup of consummation. Jesus's blood will be smeared on wood to set us free. Jesus allows his body to be broken so that we can be made beautiful. He embraces his brokenness to prove his love. And Jesus desires us to embrace our brokenness to also prove his love. So what does that mean? How can we embrace our brokenness to prove his love? So let me give you an example. So as I said before, I struggle with kidney stones. I also struggle with bladder stones, kidney infections, bladder infections. This is just my regular thing. So I'm regularly praying for God to take the cup of suffering from me. And occasionally he does. This is Mark 16, 15 through 18. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak new languages. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. I have had people pray over me in the name of Jesus, and I have had kidney stones dissolve. I have, where they're just gone. And many of us have seen physical brokenness, and many of us have seen God use physical brokenness to prove his love through physical feelings. He does it. If you've not ever seen it yet, like, just trust me, he's doing it. He's working lots of miracles, but sometimes he doesn't. So, I've had people pray over me in the name of Jesus, and the kidney stones don't dissolve. So I have to go seek medical attention, which is fine. Like, either one is fine. Because I know that if God doesn't heal, then he has a greater plan, right? And there's great power in our brokenness. I don't know about you, when I was a little girl, the one phrase when I would complain about some type of suffering to my, like, teachers or parents that they would say back to me is, offer it up, Mary Jo, offer it up. And I don't know if you were told this as a child, but I really didn't understand it. It was like they were just telling me to stop whining. But if you really understand the phrase, offer it up, it's very powerful. So if we're in that Garden of Gethsemane, praying and asking for the cup of suffering to be removed, and let's just be clear, sometimes the cup of suffering is emotional suffering, which I actually think can be much more painful than physical suffering. You know, husband's addicted to pornography or your child has a mental illness like and you're just in that garden of Gethsemane like I am struggling so bad I can't I can't do this and you're just saying Lord take this cup from me sometimes God's will is for the pain not to be taken away and he's asking us to hold on to that cup of suffering because he has a greater plan so what do we do with it like we're just holding this cup of suffering do we just cry and whine and let it be wasted we have the free will to do that we do he's not going to force us But we also, as children of God, as his heirs, we can give it a purpose. We can use it as an opportunity to show God's love. So how do we do this? How do we prove God's love through our suffering? When we're in that physical and emotional pain, we approach him. 
and we lift that cup up to him. We offer it up. You unite that sacrifice to his cross, and you put your prayer intentions on it. You let him bring forth healing through your suffering. We offer God our brokenness to bring forth his beauty. So let me give you an example of this. I was up in the middle of the night crying. I felt so sick. And I'm like, just so done being sick. And I'm so I played Bible roulette where you just kind of open up the Bible. Like, what does the Holy Spirit desire me to read? And I read the verse, Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. And I'm like, this means nothing to me. I'm not Peter, rock meaning Peter. I just kind of close my eyes to the pain. I'm like exhausted. I just am so done being sick. Satan whispers to me, your body's so broken. It's not beautiful. You're just pathetic. And I totally consent to his lies. I'm like, he's right. I'm a burden to people. Like my, you know, start just feeling terrible, but I still keep trying to pray. And I have this image in my mind of that kidney stone that my friend thought was the stigmata in my hand. And I hear those words spoken upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. And I'm like, really, God, you're going to build your church on my kidney stone? And I'm like, I'm crazy. I'm losing my mind at this point. I just keep going back to prayer. God's a builder, Mary Jo. He takes his time. Let him reveal it. He's going to reveal it. And then slowly I just came to understand he means suffering. Upon our sufferings, God will build his church. And when our suffering is poured out and united to the blood of the unblemished lamb, Jesus, Satan's powerless. So every drop of pain or discomfort we experience, no matter how small, he desires to be united to him. And when we offer up even the tiniest drop, we're building his kingdom. I like to say, and like in a British accent or English accent, I'm terrible at accents, so please bear with me. Not a single turd shall go wasted. because. I just feel like as a mom, and even when you're older and your spouse or your parents are elderly, like poop is involved, like there's feces involved. And so cleaning that is a type of emotional suffering. No one, to my knowledge, likes cleaning up poop. So when I'm cleaning up a turd and like, how does it end up on the walls? Can we not just use toilet paper and wash our hands, people? But it's like, it's everywhere. I'm just uniting this emotional suffering for the conversion of sinners, like I'm uniting this to the cross for the conversion of sinners, like don't let one drop of suffering, not a single turd go wasted in your life. Unite it to the cross and offer it for a prayer intention because our suffering becomes fertilizer that God uses to raise us up and others will come to feel his love and witness his miracles through it. In that first part of podcasts, I read this part, We are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And the next part of that is, if only we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Like, it's not just suffering. It's also the glory. Like, we're suffering for purpose, you know, not just just for suffering itself. We see miracles of healing happen through putting people in the cup of our suffering and uniting that to the cross. We see miracles of healing through praying over people in the name of Jesus. We see miracles of healing happening during Eucharistic adoration and in the Mass. This is St. Bernard of Clairvaux. God will manifest himself to you 
just as you show yourself available to him. In pouring out our lives for the love of others bit by bit, we become the living proof of God's love. And in that process, most of our rough edges are loved off. Our eyes no longer care about the opinion of others. We get loose in the joint and docile to God's will. And through that transformation, we become real. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to the people who don't understand. That's the skin horse to the Velveteen Rabbit. We become the real, broken, and beautiful body of Christ. Another quote by St. Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ looks compassion into the world. Yours are the feet with which Christ walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which Christ blesses the world. And when the priest, in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, raises up the host at Mass and speaks the word of Jesus, this is my body given up for you. We can fall before his throne and rejoice because our lives Proclaim back to Jesus. Jesus, this is my body given up for you. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.